Hello, Dennis. Monophysite. Do 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 do. Monophysite. Do 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 do. If you would have asked me what that meant before this podcast. But you now know, or maybe you don't. No, well. I was part of it, and I'm not sure I do. <laughs> Let's find out. No. This is why Chris is smart, <laughs> and Chris is on this podcast. Smart. Uh, oh, also, we have our discount going on our online course for your course and Chris's course. We have heard from 100,000 people saying this course changed their lives. Pretty close. Where do they go to find our online course? They can go to www.liturgy.online, and the discount right now is half off until February 2nd. So That is Candlemas. It is Candlemas, and it will be the lowest you will ever be able to purchase this ever. course. Ever. Seriously. And it'll so, change your life. It will also change your life. That's not a bad price for changing your life. And it will make me happy and ensure Jesse's employment, which is all a good thing. <laughs> it's sad how true that is. Okay, so without further ado, episode 17 of season 3 of The Liturgy Guys. Monophysite. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Nestorian. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Uh, Christopher. Jesse, we're would taking, you... We're taking a bit of a, bit of a break. Well, we'll see. We're going to try right. it. What I want to ask you is, would you describe Dennis as a self-absorbed Promethean Neopelagian? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, baby. You got the first part of it. <laughs> self-absorbed Promethean Neopelagian. Uh, who's, who, who, My uh, lotion is self-absorbed. Who coined, who coined that term? Who, who's, who wrote Pope that? Francis. Pope Francis, and yes. I believe Father Z has uh, happily assigned himself that... Yeah. I'm not quite sure I know what it all means. Uh, well, what did Prometheus do? do you, I don't know. He brought fire to He's the one I don't know. Oh. But what's, what's a uh, Neo-Pelagian? Or what's a Pelagian? Do you remember? No, I do not. Pelagian are kind of stereotyped as kind of self-saving through works, right? Isn't that Pelagianism is usually understood to be? Yeah, I think so. There's an over-emphasis uh, on the human will and ability to do good without the uh, divine assistance. If you pray course. enough. Remember when Pope Francis was first pope and he went home and all these children came up with these prayer uh, bouquets and they're like, we said 10,000 rosaries. And he's like, uh, I don't want those. <laughs> I don't think, remember that. Wait, that really happened? Yeah, it was because he was sort of anti this Pelagi- older Pelagian model. Well, Pelagianism and Neo-Pelagianism and Neo-Neo-Pelagian Pelagianism. And postmodern Pelagianism. Is an overemphasis on your ability to do yeah. good. I'm sort of over Neo-Pelagian. The, I'm post-Neo-Pelagian. Post-Neo-Pelagian. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about this one? In addition to Pelagianism, because he talks, this is a lot from this letter he wrote on holiness. Uh, but he, he mentions these things. This is Pope too. Francis. This is Pope okay. Francis. He also talks about a neo-Gnosticism. What is a Gnosticism? Where you don't believe in anything? It's, uh, no, it's just the opposite. If, you're, if you negate knowledge, you are agnostic. You don't know. Oh, you, gnosis, only depend, you only depend on your knowledge. Yeah, or rather it's a certain... Uh, secret knowledge? Yeah, it's a secret knowledge. knowledge. It's being uh, in, I think they were called epistochoi, being in the know. Yeah. So it's through uh, coming to a certain type of knowledge 
that uh, the Gnostics would would find their salvation. Although that is kind of scriptural, because there are places in scripture where Jesus gives a parable, and then he'll go back with the apostles and say, well, they wouldn't get it, but let me let you in on this other stuff. So some people argue that the priestly tradition in Catholicism was, in a sense, the secret knowledge that priests in the temple wouldn't have been giving out to just anybody, and that's why it's not in the early uh, scriptures, but the priestly tradition nonetheless okay. came up in the church in the beginning. Well, I suppose that's... Uh, I gotta, I'm no expert on heresy <laughs> here, at least I hope, uh, <laughs> but it seems that's a problem with a lot of these is there's grains of truth in them, and it's only when they get uh, a little bit out of bounds and unchecked that they become dangerous. Yes. And it's in that light, I would like to uh, offer a couple other neo-heresies uh, that I think are Ooh. liturgically uh, relevant today. Let's see how many of them Jesse is guilty of. Uh, Probably uh, all. Neo-Nestorianism and Ooh. Neo-Eutychianism or Neo-Monophysitism. <laughs> no ideas? <laughs> My uh, gosh. I've heard about Nestorian many times. Through. Okay, tell the council that solved I that I think problem. you're on the wrong yes, podcast yes, here. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Was that about the divinity and humanity of Christ? Yes. Okay. So uh, I yeah. could, I literally could not even repeat what you just said. <laughs> I probably couldn't either. Good okay. old Nestorius. Yeah. Tell us about Nestorius. He was a guy who had an idea about the divinity and humanity of Christ. Yes. But I don't remember. What but he a wrong said. idea. Yeah. So was it that there were two natures? Nestorius. Two, oh, two. Nestorius B I G. <laughs> what? <laughs> now I don't know what you're talking. Nestorius. No, come on. Is that Duran right. Duran? No. Oh my gosh. We are Duran. Duran. Yeah. Uh, you can't even get that right. Who pronounces it that way? Duran. <laughs> my, my eighth grade math teacher, Mr. Gardner, always called oh. it Duran Duran, as opposed to Don't Ran. <laughs> All right. Nestorius anyway. at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Nestorius had this idea, and he was emphasizing the uh, humanity of Jesus to such a degree that he um, almost, in a sense, made a human uh, person out of him. And was he the one that thought Jesus was God's best creature or something like that? That's Arianism. Oh, darn it. Yeah. There's so, so many heresies. We, we have talked about this briefly before, though. Okay. But we're going to yeah. And then I would suppose that the other would be... Yeah, one thing at a time. One heresy at a time, Jesse. Okay. <laughs> That's how I treat my heresies, one at a time. <laughs> All right. So he, he emphasized the humanity, the human element in Jesus to such a degree that he said that Mary, in fact, was not the mother of God. She was... Was ah, not yes. Theotokos. She was the mother of the human person. Got it. Right? For the record, right? We believe that Jesus is a divine person. He's one person who is divine, but he has two complete and unmixed natures so human is, nature and a divine nature, but he's only one person. So is the heresy that, the, that it is two persons Correct. and two natures? Well, the one the, nature two for persons. yeah, one one nature yeah. for each person, and then I guess uh, uh, no doubt these things are much more complex than I understand them mm-hmm. or relaying them. But that uh, again, he was championing the humanity of Christ to such a degree that he uh, he neglected his, uh, or rather, he, he he in essence made a human person out of him. Okay, this is this is wrong. Mm-hmm. All right, now twenty years later. At the uh, Council of uh, Chalcedon, 451. All right, we have the other extreme going on called monophysitism, mm-hmm. or, and I guess the, the bad guy here. Yeah, yeah, uh, Eutyches is, uh, is the fellow here. <laughs> yeah, come okay. on. Eutyches, 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 or Eutyches? Okay. And so he makes the, uh, the opposite error that he overemphasizes the divinity, divinity of Christ okay, to it. such an extent that he leaves behind his humanity. 
right? And kind of behind both of these, uh, these heresies or theological trends are philosophers as well. If you, can you picture, um, it's called The School at Athens by Raphael. Mm -hmm. It's in the uh, Vatican uh, Grottos. Oh, I, I have right? seen that. Okay, very good. Plato's pointing up. Plato's right? pointing up. And Aristotle is gesturing down towards the ground. Meanwhile, all these other lazy philosophers are flanking them and philosophizing. But uh, Plato was kind of the philosopher of the monophysites because what's really real is what's beyond versus what's down here in this world is deceptive and lies and, and evil, in fact. And so for evil, the- Evil, really? It that, goes that far? Well, I, I suppose there's all sorts of strains of this, yeah. Untrustworthy. But uh, anyway. yeah, you would want to, I mean, why would- so Jesus' human nature is going to be left behind, or it's going to be morphed into a monophusis that's not exclusively... What's it a fusis? It's like a nature, or a, oh. I suppose. So uh, one nature. One yeah. nature, yeah. But he's got to leave the human behind because that's uh, deceptive and, and bad. In the artistic okay. tradition, the yeah. uh, Platonic tradition is often not too fond of art because if the real thing is the idea, then you draw that thing the first time, then you're already reduced the idea. Well, you make the thing like this table we're sitting at that thing is already reduced from the idea. Then if you paint a picture of the table, you have two times removed from the idea. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the image is not that useful. It's just a watered down twice unreliable mm. version of the concept that's, I guess, the form of the thing somewhere else. So in that tradition, art and the trusting of materiality is not, not that high. Oh uh, yeah, well even, see, the, the where, where, I'm, where this is going to go, right? And uh, this, this is something we're studying in uh, one of Spoiler our classes. Spoiler alert. Yeah, no, it's uh, uh, one of these uh, liturgical uh, reformers named Louis Bouillet. Bouillet. Uh, uh, says that these errors about the incarnation um, become errors about the church and eventually errors about the liturgy. Totally makes sense, right? Because the church is the continuing action of Christ in his mystical body, continuing the mission, salvific mission of exactly. Christ. If you have a problem with Christ, you got a problem with the church. Right. If the you're same thing. You're right. If you're seeing, uh, uh, if you're not seeing the law, he calls it the law of the incarnation. If you got that wrong, then it's just going to color wrongly your vision of everything uh, uh, Christian. Right? So if you guys won't mind, just for old time's sake, if I quote a passage from Sacrosanctum Concilium. Sacro what? Yeah, it's a... Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know it well. At least I do know. At least up okay. to chapter 47. So this, is, uh, this is way back at chapter two, so no doubt you've forgotten about that. Okay. Where it talks about the real nature of the true church. It says, it is of the essence of the church that she be both human and divine, visible and yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation, present in this world and yet not at home in it. Okay? So what she's talking, uh, the, the council's talking about the church kind of in this same sort of lines. There's human elements and divine elements. Sounds right? oxymoronic. Well, it wasn't any more, well, perhaps in some ways it is. It was oxymoronic for Jesus to have mm -hmm. two natures as well. But if his principal sacrament is the church, that you can make the same sort of error with, uh, if you could see me, I'm, I'm making this gesture. Yeah, like a hang ten. Yeah, a hang ten Hawaii sign. Right? So you, could, you can see the church as too divine, monophysite Or not error, divine enough. Or too human. Right? <laughs> yeah, in this, uh, I mean, the, the church's human nature is, uh, is on full display these days, right? Nobody's questioning the Nestorian uh, element in the, in the human, or excuse me, in the, in the mystical body of Christ. Right? Humanity is very much uh, to the fore. But now what uh, Bouillet will go on to say is these same errors then, not just befall Christ or the church, but also... Jesse. <laughs> 
Well, but the liturgy. human, all too human, Jesse. The liturgy itself, because then you could say, oh, this is just a meal with friends. Or you could say, oh, this is just this, because we're acting on the human element of Jesus Christ, what he actually did as a man at the Last Supper with his friends. Yeah, that's that's where he's going to take this. And again, he's writing this in 1963, right? So this is the same year, December 4th, 1963, as you both know. Was the when Paul the sixth promulgated sacrosanctum concilium at eleven twenty four eleven twenty four a.m. Roman so time. we all know, okay. Wait, so, is that real? You can know <laughs> the exact same time. <laughs> no, well, that's we a day. I just made up this. Yeah, I mean, you but guys you are believed me. You guys are pretty dirty. Amazing, believed me. amazing. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of context that the, that helps what he says, but I mean, I think we can picture this today, though. I mean, what would a Nestorian liturgy look like? What would a Monophysite tending liturgy look like? Jesse? Uh, Nestorian liturgy is the emphasis on the humane, right? The human. The human. Okay. So that's, I think, probably what I would just say is that you wouldn't have any of the, the mystery and the, and the glory in the liturgy. It would be maybe just a simple remembrance of what happened at that that meal and probably still having the scriptures and then the converse. Well, no, hang on, hang on. I'm not going to let you off that easy. Okay. Am I wrong? No, no, you're right. But I want you to put some details on it. What would, uh, what would Nestorian music sound like? Or what would Nestorian architecture look like? It would all sound, it would all sound like what the, what the human, what I would think human music would. So it wouldn't have this heavenly glorious sound like the angels in heaven. It would sound as human as possible. So probably more around what our culture thinks music is. Yeah, so in its instruments, in its, uh, I don't know enough about music to speak to its musical quality, but it could, it could be very similar to what you might hear on the radio or something like that, in its performance and the rest. What would a uh, Nestorian architecture look like? Your living room. <laughs> Beige drywall, wooden floors, dying okay. house plants. Mm-hmm. Table altar. You, probably more utilitarian. Mm-hmm. In other words, Art Environment and Catholic Worship document 1970, exactly what they proposed. Yeah. It would be a skin for liturgical worship. What would uh, Nestorian tending language sound like? Everyday, common, Everyday. Yeah. slangy. Yeah. Now, is it bad that the liturgy would be human? No. No, it's essential that it be human. But if it, like It'd in... It'd be bad if it's only human. Right, if it's, if it's em, like Nestorius, if it's emphasizing humanity to such a degree that the divine element of the liturgy is disappearing, then that's a problem. Uh-huh. So what if God was one of us? That's a Nestorian song, isn't it? I guess. Just a slob like well, one of I, us. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's, de- that's devotional music. Yeah, but it's Nestorian devotion. <laughs> but, so that would be my next thing, next place to go, is it'd be, it'd be awfully devotional because... That, that tends to the human emotion, the human spirit, um, and that the human desire and pleasure that comes from, the, from devotions. Right. Uh, our faith should be uh, uh, humanly satisfying. It should speak to our humanity and satisfy its kind of supernatural uh, um, you know, direction and trends and urges and the rest. Yeah. Okay. What about uh, um, monophysite liturgy? This would be like very mysterious it would be very hard to comprehend what is going on because there's so much packed into it and it would be so uh, beyond my capability of understanding because it's so divine okay can you give me any examples 
perhaps a lot of things would be happening very secretly that I wouldn't be able to understand or see what's going on. Um, aren't there some... There's a prayer called The Secret. Oh, okay. So there we go. Um, I but, don't know anything about it. But maybe there would be some veiling of things going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we wouldn't really know what was happening. Okay. Uh, monophysite architecture. Monophysite music. I'm getting confused now. Are you? Yes. Why? Because if you think about the heavenliness of God, right, you're going to mm-hmm. talk about the transfigured nature of everything, right? So that would suddenly mean that you have to use a lot of materiality, right? It's a lot of incense and silk and gold and diamonds and chant and paint and icons and all that. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of deep incarnational materiality about it, even as it's drawing you into this reality. So I'm, I'm trying to decide if a monophysite is going to become a Puritan or if they're going to become orthodox, basically. <laughs> so oh, that's the distinction. So if you, if you think it's all divine and therefore you don't trust the human, then you might become puritanical and just say we can't have any of this stuff. But then that's what we're talking about. The human side of it is yeah. Human, well, so. I guess um, you'll have oh, that's, to pull that's me out a, of this hole. No, no, no. no I it's see it's what a great saying. question. I would say, and I, wish, uh, I should say too, that um, you know, these these are these are trends. Um, it's not like if you like uh, Gregorian praise music, you're an Nestorian heretic, or if you like Gregorian chant, you're a monophysite. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but these are these are kind of trends in Christology that can that are exhibited in uh, also the liturgy. Wasn't Francis to, kind of criticizing? sort of hyper-traditional people when he said they were neo... What were they? Neo... Neo-Gnostics or Neo-Pelagians? Neo-Pelagians. Let's leave that just aside right right. now. But I think generally the East, whether uh, Orthodox or Catholic, tends to have Plato as their philosopher and Alexandria as their theological school. And yet they're full of stuff, right? Well, this is true. See, but the West, on the contrary, or takes kind of the other side. We we tend to sympathize more with uh, the Romans and uh, the Nestorians and and the Aristotelians. and yeah, as, as long as as long as this is within bounds, this is all greatly complementary. It's only when it goes out of bounds that it gets to be trouble. So, for example, um, what is, how would you characterize Eastern, let's say, the Eastern picture of Saint Ignatius versus a Western picture of Saint Ignatius? Well, the Eastern icon will show him in his heavenly glory with all of his perfection, his clothes and hair, and all of that stuff. Right. And it's trending will, towards the divine. Right. And the West will probably show him in his human condition with his human emotions precisely what uh for the west uh, what are you supposed to do to become a saint try really hard (laughs) to what to grow in holiness and by imitating christ Christ. uh and christ especially as he walked the earth right Mm -hmm. so you uh join your sufferings to those of christ uh you may even have the stigmata uh, in the East, what do we call sanctity? Or what would they call sanctity? Well, no, what do we call sanctity? Divinization. Divinization. The it's becoming like the glorified Christ. Okay, so it's tending towards the heavenly. Yeah. In the uh, apse of a Western church, what do you see hanging or in, on the a wall? A big giant crucifix. A crucifix. In the uh, dome of an Eastern church, what would you see? Christ's pentacrator and glory. Reigning in glory. All right. So these are some the, triangle on his head, mm-hmm. something like that. So back, sorry, I just back wanted to, to say back something. to your question. I mean, these are, uh, uh, which one's right? Are those things we've just mentioned? 
two sides of the right. same coin. You're right. Yeah, they're, they're both right. And they're both, uh, I think, necessary for complete view of who Christ is, as well as to, to meet this Christ in the liturgy. Um, so kind of monophysite liturgical celebrations it, it convey the, the divine very clearly, very clearly, whereas the West uh, emphasizes uh, the hu- humanity. Duh, uh, the West. Yeah. Well, but I think you, uh, what, what, let me, let me um, as we wrap this up, let me put it this way. What age are we living in now? Are we, and it'll, surely, it's different for each person in their different places. Which uh, uh, trend do you see in worship today, in the liturgy today? In the Western Church? In the Western Church. Mm. Nestorian. My own experience is I've been fed on a pretty healthy diet of Nestorianism. <laughs> How healthy uh, is it, really? Let's get a yeah, bell on that yeah. one. I got it right. This is, uh, this is from Cardinal Ratzinger's book, uh, A New Song for the Lord, which I think is uh, probably from the 90s. Okay? He says, I think we uh, are fighting windmills when we still rail against an assumed monophysite danger today. It is not monophysitism that threatens Christianity, but Nestorianism. Mm-hmm. All right? So we even think about uh, biblical studies, you know, I, I, I'm right in the world of biblical the studies. The humanity of Jesus. Right. The search for the human, <laughs> the humanity of Jesus. I almost said human person of Jesus, right? Uh, t- through through methods to get, you know, and all of that, that supernatural about him seems to fall away to the side. Um, what does Bishop Barron say all the time? He's not a guru. He's not a guru. He's not just another ethical teacher like all the other, other ethical teachers. He's the son of God who took humanity into the Trinity, yeah, saved yeah, it. Yeah. So I think, uh, uh, at least in my experience, again, everyone can speak for himself or herself, is the, the liturgy uh, has, in, in my lifetime has really struggled with uh, the Nestorian tendency to make things casual and hum- uh, 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 seemingly reducing the, uh, the otherworldly. Right? And I even think about, the, um, uh, think about the translation of the Missal. You know, I think it's a good example, you know, what tone should that language have? Should it be, you know, kind of man on the street, casual, or should it be elevated, reserved for sacred language? I think it should be consubstantial, both um, words that I know and words yeah. I don't know. Well, and I think, too, maybe just as a, as a final point, you know, uh, insofar as people are attracted to the extraordinary form, I think it's because they see in that, finally, something that is different from the ordinary. Uh, you know, what, the incense, the chant, the Latin, the ad orientum, which, right, <laughs> you can do in the ordinary form, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's, uh, this is my opinion, I think that's what people are attracted to, is that part of themselves, of the church, of Christ, that speaks more clearly uh, in the extraordinary form. In fact, in this letter that uh, Benedict, Pope Benedict wrote, uh, accompanying Sumorum Pontificum, when he talks about the mutual enrichment of the rites, he says that uh, by this mutual enrichment, the celebration of the Mass according to the Missal of Paul VI will be able to demonstrate more powerfully than has been the case hitherto the sacrality which attracts many people to the former usage. The monophysite. How did you remember things. that quote so perfectly? Everybody remembers that. He's got a brain like that. <laughs> so when we're talking about the, the human Jesus and the divine Jesus, isn't it in the liturgy, it's, the, it's always the human 
um, working towards the divine. So it's us and our humanity working towards the divine. So wouldn't that be, you know, we we still need all of the mystery and the heavenly music and and the and the angels and saints in their heavenly glory um, as the as the goal to which we as humans are moving towards. Uh, this kind of reminds me of Dennis's comment earlier about um, well, the, when there's to, all this uh, this yeah, heavenly stuff, yes. but it's using all this material. Yeah. See, and I think that's the answer is uh, to when, God willing, you are saints and divinized, you don't morph into angels. You remain bodily. Bodily, absolutely. See, and this is why both dimensions have to be oh. present, is you don't check... That blew my mind right there. You don't check Whoa. your humanity at the door when you walk into the church. You bring it all in, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's going to be divinized, perfected, transfigured uh, into images of Christ. But you, you never cease being human, even as you become even in divine. Heaven? Even in heaven? I'll, right. Yeah. Whoa! Right, right. I never body. thought about that before. Oh, sure. See, and and so there's 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 kind of lessons, which is what Christ is. <laughs> yeah. Whoa! Well, Transfigured, well, see, resurrected, oh goodness, glorified this, this body. Is, this is another side effect. Is that if if you know if you have the skewed, <laughs> but the Eucharist side effects may include <laughs> if you have the skewed vision of Christology that is reflected in liturgy, it's gonna it's going to either uh, downplay your own humanity. Or keep you locked in your human horizon that you never see to uh, to become sanctified. So this is why the complete, as is possible, this side of heaven, or I suppose any side of heaven, God is not going to be contained in anything finite. But this is why our liturgical rites have to speak to both of these dimensions of Christ, because in the end, they're forming both dimensions of you. Wow. You know what I'm thinking of right now is the green mural <laughs> on the wall at the Salt Lake City Cathedral of the Madeline. So if anybody's listening... Go look that up on Google. It's this beautiful scene of the heavenly Jerusalem, the golden walls in the back, but Christ is on the cross still, and God the Father's holding the cross, and the angels are catching the blood, but it's this glorified crucifixion because Christ's crucifixion is an eternal act. So it's an eternal offering of the Son to the Father. So even though it's the humanity of Christ and his suffering, it's happening in this glorified manner in the heavenly Jerusalem, which I think is a good bridge maybe between these two extremes. Well, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a great example. And even, you know, with these icons, as, as you've pointed out, I mean, they, they, you can recognize them as people, mm -hmm. right? They don't look like anything other than people, but all their features are perfect. You know, they're, they're restored, they're divinized. And this is, uh, this is what uh, the liturgy is supposed to do for us is you, you remain yourself, but you become the perfect image of yourself that God had meant you to be. So anyway, I think uh, I have found in looking at liturgical things that these are helpful lenses to, to look through, the, the human and the divine, um, that uh, you know, can help evaluate different things about liturgical elements, whether it's its language or its music or its architecture or its preaching or its vestments or, or whatever it is, that both of those have to be accounted for. So bottom line, don't be a heretic. <laughs> that's right. Gosh, that's, that's like keep your eyes the hardest on thing to do ever is to not be a heretic. You know how many uh, heresies there? There's oh, like there's, hundreds. There's a lot. Actually, there there's aren't that lot. many new ones. They just keep coming back in new forms. Right? Nobody yeah. thinks they're a neo. Anything. These heresies brought to you by uh, the liturgy guys. <laughs> These heresies solved in the fourth century, still coming back. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Mm. And thank you, Dennis. I didn't do anything, but you're certainly welcome. Um, do you want to answer a question? Oh, yes. 
So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This week, we have a question from Chris, not Karstens, and, uh, yeah. and Chris says, I was wondering about the phrase, the spirit of Vatican II. I think we have all heard this before, but what kind of validity, if any, does the spirit of the conference actually have in arguments regarding what Vatican II was trying to implement and what is actually said? Let's talk about the word spirit first. Okay. Right. Because there are three spirit of the liturgies. Spirits of the Liturgy? I don't know how you say that. Mothers-in-law? There was a guy named Caranti in the 19th century who wrote a book, Spirit of the Liturgy, that nobody knows. And then Guardini in 19, what, 14, 17, 18, something like that, wrote his Spirit of the Liturgy. 18. Chris gives me the eye. And then Pope Benedict, before he was Pope Benedict. And then Dennis McNamara. Spirit of the Liturgy. And then I I just stole it. So everybody's interested in the spirit of the Liturgy. And if you think about spirit and truth, or you think about law versus spirit, the idea that you're just bound to external realities is kind of the law, right? You do what the law says. Spirit means intentionality, it means heart, it means self-giving, it means fullness, it means from the depths of you rather than, you know, an interiority rather than just mere external offerings and manifestations. So the word spirit is a good word. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think we talked about it on one of the podcasts saying, you know, if you're the spirit of being a parent, isn't just following the rule book about changing diapers. You know, there's a thousand things that come up that are not in the law of being a parent, but you just, you have the spirit of loving your child, whatever they need. And so that's legit. So properly speaking, you could say there's a spirit of Vatican II, which is to understand the liturgical movement, where it came from, what the liturgical form was about, what the interior exterior participation was about for the 150 years before Vatican II, and that is legit. However, Chris, the Chris Carson's not this, Chris Parenthesis. Yeah, this is a different Chris. Chris. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the spirit of Vatican II, for example, is connected to and rooted in and based upon the text of Vatican II. The good one, the good spirit of Vatican II. The good spirit, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, did I miss uh, something there? Well, there's this concept of spirit of Vatican II that people usually yeah, think is the abusive understanding of Vatican II. Right. It's not what it's actually it, said. It seems to me that, you know, there's, these, uh, there's a literal sense of sacred scripture and a spiritual sense of sacred scripture, right? The literal sense is the meaning intended by the author and the spiritual sense, such as the moral or the, they call it what, the eschatological or heavenly and the <sighs> allegorical, uh, are different spiritual meanings, but they're all based upon the literal meaning of the scripture. And I think there's a parallel here Mm -hmm. with the text of Vatican II. Uh, The spirit of Vatican II has to be based upon the text of Vatican II. And when when Chris is talking, the other 
the Chris is not me. Non Karstens. Uh, talking about Chris the spirit of Vatican II. Too often that is divorced from and not in. Uh, well, you know the the thing to read, Dennis. He's pointing his finger at me. Do you see? Is that, the Jesse? December twenty second, two thousand and five address from Pope, Pope Benedict, Benedict to the Roman Curia. That's right. Where he talks about the. You remember this one, Jesse? Of course. But why don't you refresh everybody he talks else about <laughs> the hermeneutic of reform versus the hermeneutic, hermeneutic of. of discontinuity and disruption yeah he said these were two battling uh, I don't know what the plural of hermeneutic is hermeneutics probably mm-hmm. uh, but he says that uh, the one he's t- essentially talking about the spirit of Vatican II that was unmoored from tradition and history and texts and that it was a spirit of compromise that uh, really wasn't reflected in what the text really said and he right. said this is uh, a misunderstanding of a council, right? That mm. if you think of a council the way you would think of some political operation of producing legisl- uh, legislation, you have the conservatives on one side, the liberals on the other side, and they duke it out, and nobody's really happy, but the conservatives keep the liberals from getting what they want, the liberals keep the conservatives from getting what they want, and basically the end result is a compromise. And so that many people on the spirit of Vatican II's side will say, well, Vatican II says Latin is the Roman, the language of the Roman church and chant is given pride of place and all that stuff, you know, seminary studies should, you know, learn Latin and all that stuff. But that's not really what they meant. That's just that pesky stuff that the conservatives refused to concede on and they had to sort of agree. So that was it. So what he argues, what Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict argues, is that's not the nature of a council. A council is guided by the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the fruit of what the church needs at that moment. And so the text is the certainty of what the council actually means, not the spirit of what you wished it would have said. And if you can't trust the text, then you have to decide what it should have said that it didn't say. And that's what became known <laughs> as the spirit of Vatican II. Yeah, no, it's just like interpreting a, a spiritually a piece of sacred scripture. If it has nothing, if it's not anchored in the literal meaning, well, then it can just mean whatever you want it to mean. But it, you can't do that. It's, it's got to be rooted in the literal text. We right. should talk about the spirit of the U.S. Constitution then. Well, there is, right. And it has to be rooted in the Constitution, right? There are there people all the time who make up stuff that's not in the Constitution. Well, what they meant was this. Well, right, yeah. yeah. Or you read things into it. That's where Roe versus Wade and the right to privacy came from. It's not mentioned specifically, but they sort of interpreted that it was there. So somebody has to interpret it properly. And if you get unhinged from the text, then who's going to decide? And what Pope Benedict said was the, what we call now the spirit of Vatican II was actually an, un, an approach to the text that was considered as the text was untrustworthy, and then you had to go figure it out yourself, and what I think he said, room was made for every whim. Anything that anybody thought was the interpretation, proper interpretation of Vatican II was called the spirit of. And that's where this comes from, which is why it is often interpreted by people who've either never read the document or misread the document, and so you say, well, where does it say that in Vatican II? And they're like, oh, Vatican II said, paint all the churches beige. Well, no, it didn't. Or Vatican II said, no more Latin. Well, no, it didn't. So all the things that people say Vatican II intended, but maybe didn't say. We should do a podcast on Sacrosanctum Concilium. We should. Oh, yeah. We should do like so. 30 of them. Yeah, let's never stop. Let's do it forever. But you know what? We're almost at the halfway point, so we're making progress. Wait, what? At the halfway point of Sacrosanctum Concilium. We're up to like, uh, what, 50, 60, something like that. So. All right. Well, let's keep trucking. So right. then you can know what the proper spirit of Vatican II is and not the ignorant, false spirit of Vatican II. All right, Chris, not Carsons. I hope that answered your question. If you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Chris, what's your Twitter handle? That's right, you don't have one. All right, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. 
If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.